Hello and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show today, Amazon is making its own phone. Impulse shoppers rejoice for the entire world is now your checkout aisle. Then we'll talk about the future of fossil fuels in a world of climate change and Iraqi chaos. And finally, Argentina, my favorite subject in the world, has the U.S. Supreme Court essentially forced it to default on its debts again. And then, of course, there's the lightning round at the end where each of the three of us will come up with a single number which caught our attention this week. Let me introduce regular guest Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia. What's your number this week? My number is $159 billion. That's a very large number. Thank you and very much. Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman, is also here. Jordan, you can't possibly come up with a number bigger than $159 billion. No, I'm going for minimalism this week. I'm going for a mere $82. $82? 82. Okay, that's smaller than $159 billion. I am going to split the difference if you look at it on a log scale, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and I'm going to go for $14 million. But we will get to those numbers shortly. We, first of all, however, are going to talk about telephones. Jordan, what's been going on? Well, after years of anticipation on Wednesday, like Prometheus in Seattle, Jeff Bezos took the stage and brought us the Fire smartphone, Amazon's very own smartphone. Finally, they have entered the market as everyone was expecting. However, a lot of tech journalists were a bit surprised. They were thinking that Amazon was going to produce, um, much like its tablets, something slightly cheaper that was sort of good enough that a lot of people would be able to buy and hook them into Amazon's entire ecosystem of shopping. Instead, they came out with this very much deluxe, very high-end product. It shows images in 3D, essentially. You can look into your phone. It has, of course, uh, great shopping functions. You can point at pretty much anything in the room, and it will take you to a page on Amazon. It's called Firefly, where you can snap it up. Uh, like you said in the intro, it is an impulse shopper's best friend or worst enemy, depending on their bank account. You know, this is their entry into what is now already a, a tough and crowded market, and you know, I haven't seen a lot of high expectations for uh, its chances of succeeding, frankly. Before we go into why this is a, such an utter disaster, which I think <laughs> we all already agree on, I'd like to back up and, and talk a little bit about why this might work. Um, namely, we've been seeing people, especially young people, increasingly use their mobile phones over laptops. And for advertisers, this is a problem because cookies or standard cookies don't work on mobile devices. And it's also really hard to, like, fill out forms. Um, if you want to shop online, it's hard to, like, fill out those little address forms and stuff. So it's actually kind of a pain to buy stuff on phones. So it makes sense for a place like Amazon to say, I'm going to make it easy for you to spend money on your phone. You only have to log in once onto your account. It's attached to your phone. So from then on, you just poke at things you want and they get sent to your house. So it kind of makes sense in that sense that other places and advertisers and marketers have trouble with this mobile thing and they want a solution. And Amazon is trying to step into so, that space. So I understand why it makes sense for Amazon, obviously. I understand why it makes sense for anyone who wants to sell stuff to people. But they have a problem here that this is a phone which costs something over $600 and they need people to spend $600 to buy it. So the question is, why does it make sense for 
us. And this is where I think most people are getting a little bit stuck with this whole concept of the Amazon phone is that shopping is not and never will be the killer app for anyone's phone. It's not the app that you use most or second most or even third or fourth most. But can you imagine somebody who that, that actually was the app? Like they were just so impulsive. They're just walking around somewhere in Brooklyn and just flashing the phone. I mean, it's kind of absurd, which tells well, you, you're right, who would actually need something like Firefly it was so badly that it would become the thing that made them buy it rather than all the other considerations that especially, go into. Especially seeing as how I give Amazon less than a year before they launch Firefly for Android and iOS. I mean, it will appear on everyone's phones eventually. It makes no sense for them to confine this technology just to their own phone. Yeah, so, I mean, I have two points. First of all, before I boycotted Amazon a couple of weeks ago, I was their best customer. No, seriously, I have three kids, a husband, and I'm the only shopper in my house. I don't like shopping. So Amazon Prime was my friend, and I got everything, everything on Amazon. But having said that, there's no way in which I idolize the concept of shopping to the point where I'd want a phone to help me shop. So my question is, who would buy this? Like, my feeling is that people who are really into consumerism buy iPhones. They're not going to give up their iPhones for the consumerism like focused phone, which is the Amazon and, phone. And what's more, there are companies like Klarna, which is not very big in the US yet, but is enormous in Sweden and Germany, and and it's going to be launching in the U.S., or it has already launched in the U.S., and Max Levchin, the PayPal co-founder, is also launching a competitor, which are all trying to solve exactly the problem that you talked about, Kathy, which is the problem of it's actually really quite hard to fill out forms and do things on, on the phone with Klarna or with similar apps, which aren't even apps. You don't even need to be running the app on your phone. It just runs on in the background on the site of whatever shopping site you're at. You just type in your email address and bang, this thing appears. Well, you know, this also, the, the whole idea of the Amazon phone, I think it's this bigger issue about what's happening in tech right now, which is I, I've called it sort of the Walmartization of the tech world, where every one of the major tech companies sort of wants to be the general store of the internet now. Amazon used to actually be the general store in terms of shopping. But you see now it's trying to get into essentially advertising with this. I mean, that's a big part of it. They're trying to move into Google's territory. Google has moved into shopping. Apple is working on payments so it can make e-commerce a little better in its ecosystem. And they're all kind of converging on each other's territory. And this has been happening for a series of years now. And I think this phone is a, a particularly good symbol of just how the tech world is all, you know, they're all just trying to eat each other's lunch and kind of ignoring uh, comparative advantage. But, but this is ultimately good for consumers. Even if no one buys the phone, the competition is good for everyone, right? It will improve the quality of the phones that we all have in one way or another. Well, I, I was going to bring up another thing. I'm glad that you, Jordan, brought up this idea of tech culture, because I feel like this, especially if you read about the way that Bezos launched this and it was so self-congratulatory that it really it also exposes another kind of cult mentality that you're seeing in the tech world where because we're Amazon and we must be taking over the world because we're Amazon people must be totally just waiting for some product like this it's just you know sort of have a blind spot I don't know if it's I don't know if it's cultish I think there's kind of mentality you always have to be crushing it constantly if you're a startup I think these companies also they always have to feel like we just crushed this product you know we just knocked it out of the park and we have to act like this is the biggest deal or people are just not going to pay attention to it. And, and frankly, if you're Jeff Bezos, you can be excused for having a bit of a big head about this <laughs> because in terms of launching products, he has an unbelievable hit rate from, you know, the original online bookstore through 
to cloud and Amazon Web Services and the Kindle. I mean, pretty much everything he's launched has done incredibly well. Well, and part of that is, as we said at the beginning, because he's willing to lose money on these products, whereas this phone doesn't look like one of those examples. Yeah, that's interesting. It looks like they've kind of gone for margins, or is it just that they've packed it with so much stuff that even though it's expensive, it's still going to lose money? I suspect that they just don't have the economies of scale that Google and Apple have when they're making phones. They're putting four cameras on the front of this phone. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, I don't think they can do that cheaply. My guess is that the cost to Amazon of making a Fire phone is significantly higher than the cost to Apple of making an iPhone 5S. Am I being stupid, but why do you need that many cameras? Oh, this actually got me really excited. So (laughs) the reason they put it on there is for the 3D. It's the, quote, dynamic perspective, and it keeps track of your face, essentially. So it can always tell where you're looking at it from and adjust to the image on the screen. But that's not why I got excited about it. That's a gimmick. Why I got excited... (laughs) And creepy. Why I got excited about it is because I'm a photo geek a little bit, and so that opens actually a lot of possibilities for photography and combining images and even possibly doing some kind of 3D work when you're taking pictures. I can almost see this phone being a slightly cheaper version, maybe being marketed to our artsy types who want their phone to do more in terms of, you know, being able to snapshots. And they do have a great cloud service for your photographs. So people, if you're in the market for a new phone and you're not locked into Android or iPhone, which means I'm talking to zero of you, then, <laughs> then you might want to consider this. Kathy. Yes. People were saying rude things to me on Twitter last week about how my segues were far too cheap. So I'm not even going to segue here. Just talk about oil. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that beautiful segue. So oil. You know, I, I want to tell a little story from when I worked in a hedge fund. Every time I hear about the Goldman Sachs elevator Twitter feed, and I, I, I understand that it wasn't actually from Goldman Sachs, but it made me think of this one time I was in the elevator coming down and there was like somebody in the executive committee. And every, anytime you're in the elevator with somebody from the executive committee, everyone acts weird. And this one guy acted really weird to this person and was like, if crude hits 100, we're going to make a billion dollars. And the executive committee member just looked at that guy like, you don't say that in an elevator. <laughs> well, that was in 2007. Where was crude at the time? It was reaching there. I mean, it was went... It, was it below or above? It was below. It was going up. And it really spiked up and then went crashed during the recession. So I was looking at crude earlier this this morning because I was just trying to figure out what's going on. And over the last 10 years, it's basically been a pretty consistent climb up except for that one where it went way up to 140 and crashed down like half its price. and then, But then it recovered and it's been kind of climbing ever since and it's pretty much at a high. So where is it now? It's at 106. In the U.S. Which is the kind of money which oil traders start getting big dollar signs in front of their sure. eyes. But it hasn't. So there's been a lot of stuff going on in Iraq with sectarian violence, and it hasn't spiked in the last few days because of that. So that's one thing. But one thing I wanted to mention was that historically, oil prices are very volatile. They're typically considered to be moving around because of supply, um, not demand. Here's the new thing. A report that came out from the London um, School of Economics basically said, if politicians follow through with their promises on climate change stuff, we won't even be able to burn all the crude that we already have. And there'll be plenty of crude that is just left over after we've passed all our boundaries. So the question is, like, first of all, have markets taken this into account? And second of all, do markets believe politicians? So, so we have two, just to be clear here, we have two opposing forces. On the one hand, we have ISIS rampaging through Iraq 
and taking a bunch of Iraqi oil off the market and taking over oil refineries and generally causing all manner of chaos in the Middle East. And that's always positive for oil prices. Right. They go up when there's Be- chaos in the Middle East because, because people think less the supply. supply. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, we have this idea that the world collectively will simply agree to start burning less oil and that demand for oil is just not going to meet, it's going to be lower than the amount of supply that we have, and that's negative for oil prices. And so these two um, forces are acting against each other, right? Right. One of them is cutting off supply, and the other one is actually cutting off demand. Well, so about the the Cancun agreement, the idea that governments got together and agreed, essentially that they were going to keep the earth from getting more than two degrees Celsius hotter. That was the agreement. That's we're so far past. I, in fact, I think actually we've officially passed the point where we can prevent that from happening. I, I'm blanking on exactly um, where we are in terms of uh, parts, you know, per billion of carbon in the atmosphere. But that, that's that was a very hopeful idea that it looks like we're just going to kind of fail on. And it, you know, there are questions about how meaningful that number is. Um, the idea that. So the, wait, are you saying that if we fail on the two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures, yeah, then that means we may as well just give up and no, not stop not ta- oh, no, 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 no. I'm just saying that particular, like that particular calculation, based on if we were to, yeah, I mean, but but, but this mean, has got nothing to do with oil oil demand, right? What we're saying is that if we try and hit, if we try and reduce our demand for for carbon, yeah, and that's going to reduce well, so, the amount I mean, of oil. But, so where I was going next is that it's not as if there's some hard cutoff, like at this moment where we hit two degrees, no politician's going to make it possible to stop using fossil fuels as soon as we hit that level. The other, the issue that somehow we're going to burn through all of our reserves, um, which is what that report was talking about. You see versions of this idea come up every once in a while, such as when we were talking about what would happen if you burned through all of the tar sands up in Canada. And the reality is it would take a thousand years to do that. You know, we, every, going, time, every time someone claims we've hit peak oil, it yeah. turns out we discover some even more environmentally destructive of finding even more oil, and we keep on going well, as we yeah. were. So, but again, so the idea that this is, you know, this problem that, oh, we will never be able to burn through all these reserves that we have, I'm a little skeptical that that's really well, a, Everyone's a saying we're able to. The question is, there might be no. political will not to. Well, no, but even it's such a long-term problem that the idea that we would see it show up in the price of oil oil today strikes me as a little bit odd. Okay, a couple um, things. I mean, yeah. first of all, I, I think it's worth mentioning that the way we got from this two degree um, goal yeah. to this many barrels of oil yeah. was through a model and the, yeah. the, the climate change model. And the climate change model is, of course, you know, not a like super precise thing. So I, I agree with you that it's not a precise target if you say two degrees, but you could turn that into a quite precise target in terms of barrels of oil. You could just say, well, OK, we, we don't want to wait for the two degree thing or the four degree thing or depending on what we decide. Oh, Idealistic. No, theoretic, no, Theoretically, the politicians could say my country will not burn more than this many barrels of oil. I'm just saying that in order to get to two degrees at this point, we would have to cut off our but fossil no fuel use yeah. to, I mean, to actually hit I, the target. I think you're changing the subject to no particular use. Here. There's no point in bringing, keep on bringing it back to the two degrees thing. The two degrees thing is unrelated to the price of oil is what we're saying. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying that not only do investors not believe the politicians, it would probably be absurd for them to believe the politicians because there is almost no realistic way at this point we will hit this two degree Celsius target. It's just we're so far gone already. Um, and any more realistic target, it would probably take 
far more than, say, 10 years uh, that futures are going to reach for it to actually affect the oil market. And so that's why, at this point, I don't think many oil traders and the NYMEX or whatnot are seriously thinking about pricing in whatever international agreements are being made right now. It's really a, a, a reflection of the fact that markets don't believe politicians. Markets don't believe politicians. This is true. And global warming is the single biggest collective action problem that the world has ever seen. And collective action problems, by their nature, are incredibly intractable things. And there is my absolute softball of a segue, Kathy, because we're going to talk about another collective action problem here, which is the problem of what happens if you are a country and you're in default on your debt and you want to restructure your debt? What you need to do is you need to persuade all of your bondholders to swap their old defaulted bonds for new performing bonds. And that's a collective action problem because you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of bondholders. And it's really hard to persuade them all to do that. And so when Argentina defaulted in 2002, it then entered into a pair of exchange offers, the second one in 2010. And at the end of those exchange offers, it had persuaded 93% of its bondholders to swap their bonds for new performing debt. And the big problem is what's happened with the other 7%. The other 7% took Argentina to court and said, you still haven't paid us, you need to pay us. The courts agreed. It got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then this week, the Supreme Court said, you know what? You have to pay these guys. And they have implemented, well, the Supreme Court hasn't, but a lower court has, has implemented an absolutely thermonuclear remedy, which basically means that unless these so-called vulture funds get paid off in full to the tune of billions of dollars, Argentina is going to have to default again, even though it doesn't want to. So, Kathy, I know that you love talking to me about this. I do. And I, it's because you love it so much, Felix. <laughs> and so instead of making my comments, which I really, I, I have more questions than comments. I'm just going to interview about you about Argentinian <laughs> debt, if you don't mind. And the first question is, why is the debt in U.S. dollars? And how does that play into this? Very good question. That is in U.S. dollars because that was the currency in which most people wanted to lend. You can buy debt in Argentine pesos, and the debt in Argentine pesos is actually performing fine and will continue to perform. It's the debt in U.S. dollars which is at risk because it was issued under New York law and under something called a waiver of sovereign immunity. Argentina said, for the purposes of this bond documentation, we will waive our sovereign immunity. And um, Antonin Scalia um, this week released an opinion basically saying, I'm taking that waiver of sovereign immunity at face value, even though it's almost never taken at face value. And the result is that the New York courts have a very large degree of latitude in terms of what they can order people in New York to do, and specifically what they can order the Bank of New York to do, which is the trustee for the bondholders. And what Judge Grisey in New York has done is he's told Bank of New York that it cannot pay the bondholders, the coupons that it receives from Argentina, unless and until Argentina has settled with Elias Associates and the other vulture funds. And so that's why the New York and U.S. law is so important here because all banks ultimately have to have operations in New York and because the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and as a result, 
New York courts have unbelievable amounts of control over the international financial system and what it can and can't do. Interesting. And then here's my next question. If you're Argentina, what do you do? Because, I mean, I see the, I see the rhetoric around these, these hedge fund guys who are saying, you know, if Argentina wants to stay upright citizen of the world, then they should know better than to try to get away with stealing our money. But on the other hand, it looks like Argentina just doesn't have the money to pay. So it seems like they'd be screwed if they did pay. So what do you do if you're Argentina? Argentina has no good choices here. It has a bunch of very bad options. Um, One is that it does what the US courts have ordered it to do, which is pay off its holdouts in full. And the holdouts have been accruing past due interest, which has been compounding since 2002, which means that the amount they owe these holdouts has now approached somewhere in the region of $15 billion. Argentina does not have $15 billion to pay holdouts. Its entire foreign reserves are less than twice that. So that would be very difficult and almost impossible and very fiscally irresponsible of of Argentina to do. So And plus, there's also been a huge amount of rhetoric against the vulture funds in Argentina. The fiery leftist president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, is very aggressively anti these people. And she would, you know, over her dead body, pay them off in full. So that's just not going to happen, notwithstanding the fact that Argentina has made noises about the fact that it wants to negotiate with them. Uh, The second choice is it just defaults on everything because it can't pay the exchange bondholders because it can't pay the new bondholders. It can just default on everyone. And then that's actually weirdly okay by the New York judge. Mm. He kept on saying, you know what? You don't need to pay the vulture funds. But if you don't pay them, you just can't pay anyone else. Right. So they're, they're actually getting in trouble for paying more recent bondholders, but not yeah. these old it, guys. There's, uh, in the eyes of the New York courts, there's something worse than being in default, which is being in selective default. Mm. That if you're paying someone, that's worse than if you're paying no one, which is a little bit bizarre. This whole issue with, with the, the fact that the Supreme Court has essentially, I mean, it didn't actually take the case. When it issued an opinion, it decided it was not even going to intervene just by washing its hands of this issue. It has essentially made a major foreign policy decision for the United States, which I find remarkable. That And, and actually, Justice Scalia, in the opinion which he did write, which yeah. kind of people didn't notice because it was in a parallel case, which wasn't directly the one which people cared about, yeah. addressed this directly. And he said, up until 1976... The question of sovereign immunity and how America deals with foreign sovereigns and whether they can get away with certain behavior was up to the executive branch. And then in 1976, Congress passed the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act Mm -hmm. and put it all into the force of law. And what Scalia says, and the Supreme Court agreed with him with only one dissent, was basically, well, now it's our job to conduct foreign policy in this way and decide who gets immunity and who doesn't and when. And the executive has nothing to do with it. And notwithstanding the fact that the IMF and Mexico and Brazil and France and even the United States had weighed in on the side of Argentina in this case, it it takes a lot for the United States, not just the Obama administration, by the way, but also the Bush administration, which hated Argentina weighed in on the side of Argentina in this case because yeah. because they're sovereigns and they want sovereigns to have sovereign rights. But the Supreme Court said, you know what, it's up to us now and we're not going to give them an inch. And, you know, the thing about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and you see all sorts of wacky cases spin out from it. A lot of, a lot of human rights cases actually have sort of spun off from that piece of legislation. 
Um, but the courts are supposed to take into consideration foreign policy, like the foreign policy preferences of the executive. They're not supposed to just wash their hands of it. It isn't carte blanche to just ignore the balance of powers. So it's just, you know, it, I guess it, it, I feel, it feels weird when you basically have Justice Scalia, a man who is, let's be real, not particularly qualified to decide the financial fate of an entire nation. I mean, something has gone awry. That- yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I feel like I feel for Argentina. I've, I'm rooting for them to like default on all their debt. After all, they're they're claiming that the financial crisis that they're constantly undergoing prevents them from actually paying off these debts. And it, I feel like the United States is just hypocritical. We get to do things outside of our normal rules in our financial crises, but we don't allow other countries this, the same. This is, a, this is a prime example of extraterritoriality of the United States basically imposing its policies on someone else. And in this case, it's not even the policies of the executive. It's just whatever some judge in New York, Thomas Grisey, wants to do. And I think you're right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I want Argentina to just default on everyone and say, well, fine. You know, if, if you guys won't let us pay, you can't blame us for not paying you. And my idea, which is literally just my idea, and I haven't seen anyone <laughs> of, of any actual importance come up with this idea, is that what they then should do is just continue to issue lots and lots and lots of debt domestically. They can link those bonds to the dollar, so you still get dollar-linked coupons, and use the proceeds to buy back the defaulted debt. Their net debt would actually go down, and they would just move themselves out of, slowly move themselves out of the international financial markets, which they have been shut out of through basically very little fault of their own. But I could, honestly, and actually, Kathy, you have heard me talk about this for, for well <laughs> over an it. hour. I will happily answer all questions which are sent to us by email on the question of Argentina. Or Twitter. Or Twitter. But we will move on to the numbers round, and I think we're going to do this um, in numerical order. So, Jordan, you're the little guy. I am the little guy this week. Aww. Uh, aww. Um, so my number, again, is $82, which is the average premium that Obamacare users, Obamacare patients, uh, the median premium that people are paying if they're getting subsidies from the government uh, under Obamacare, So, which is less than the cost of cable. People, uh, There are millions and millions of Americans who, as Vox.com pointed out, are getting their health care now uh, for less than the price of, you know, Time Warner cable. And the people who are eligible for these subsidies, essentially, are mostly between 100% and 400% of the poverty line. So we're talking some lower income people. And what's the poverty line? It's about $20,000? It depends. On, it, it varies okay. from around, depending on how many people are in the household and whatnot. So, you know, it, it's higher if you've got two kids, lower if it's just a single adult. But, you know, you're still talking, you know, middle class, like middle, middle class in some cases. You know, this is a big deal. Uh, people are getting affordable, decent insurance on these exchanges. And it's a, it's a sign of how this law, despite the many hiccups it's had, uh, is in some ways working very, very right. And they're also paying way too much for TV, in my opinion. That, Probably. That, that's also true. My number is 14 million. And I'm going to go way up to the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum here. There's a condo development in Miami which with 240 apartments in it. And if you buy into this condo development, you buy a share of two Jeff Koons sculptures which have been bought by the condo developer for 
fourteen million dollars. Terrible. And the, the, the Jeff Koons sculptures live in the condo development, and then you actually have part ownership of these Jeff Koons sculptures. Miami, of course, is the spiritual heart of condo flipping and owning a house as financial speculation. And the only other place which is as crazy about objects as speculative vehicles is the Jeff Koons market, really, the, in, in the art market, or maybe a little bit of the Warhol market. And so I just love this idea that you can speculate on both things at once. Important question. What are the sculptures you. of? I was because I'm like, Adam and Eve sculptures, you know, in, the, in yeah. that big mall, I know which part I'd want. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, you can, you can get to... There is, there is at least one naked lady in there. Awesome. Oh, Jeff Koons. Did you see the Vanity Fair picture? Oh, yes. And, and officially, people, you don't actually need to go out and buy the latest issue of Vanity Fair. But if you go onto the internet, you get to see Jeff Koons naked in Vanity Fair. And trust me, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. No. Kathy, what's your wow. number? Moving swiftly on. Now I know what not to read. <laughs> um, my, my number t- um, this week is 159, which is 159 billion. That's number of dollars that the S&P had in buybacks in the first quarter of 2014. So that's a lot of money. Um, just to put into perspective, the biggest year of buybacks had um, $535 billion, and we're well on our way, if we continue like this quarter, to have more than $600 billion. It's also a 59% increase from last quarter. So the idea is that why do companies do this in the S&P 500? Um, the idea and, and to be clear, what they're doing is they're buying their own stock. They're buying their own stock. Now, they're, they're spending $159 billion a quarter. That's over $50 billion a month right. buying their own stock. Right. And that's quite a bit on average for those 500 companies. And they do it because they have extra cash and they want their share prices to go up. And their their shareholders love that. I mean, it's as simple as that. The thing which really struck me about that figure was that if you looked at the top five companies for share buybacks, four of them were in technology. Uh, Apple was number one by some margin, and then there was also Oracle and Cisco and IBM. The only company which wasn't in technology was, to go back to our earlier topic, ExxonMobil. But it shows that the big technology companies are not fast-growing zero-dividend stocks anymore. Technology buybacks are just... dividends by a different name, basically. And they're paying more money back to shareholders than virtually any other companies these days. I think the the, the other thing I just want to add, the funny thing about stock buybacks is when people have actually taken some time to look at them and, and really analyze, is that they're not necessarily timed that well for shareholders. They don't necessarily buy them. They don't necessarily buy back their stock when it's cheap, which is when you're supposed to if you're a company. Uh, they buy it back when it works well for the executives. Well, bonus. it's it's... It's good for the shareholders who sell. No, that's <laughs> the, the trick. Yeah, the yeah. trick is like if 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 the company is offering to buy back, it's like you know, Marcel. Yeah, you can have some of my stock. Did you say Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> With which, on which note, as this podcast evolves into chaos, we will bring it to a swift and timely and merciful close. <laughs> we will try not to talk about Argentina too much next week. I apologize if we won't sound a bit too much on that. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Slate Money. If you liked it, subscribe to us in iTunes. We're easy to find. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you have something nice to say about us, why not leave us a review? We would appreciate it. If you have any comments or kudos or questions about Argentina, you can write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. 
The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. Slate Money.